assembly today. So glad that you are here. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is there anybody here who has never had an appointment of some kind? We start our children out now with appointments, don't we? When they're about a month old or six weeks old, they've got a doctor's appointment. They, they go and they have that checkup. And, and, you know, they've got to go have their vaccines, and so they have appointments for that. And all of us have had appointments of some kind, doctor's appointments, dentist appointments, maybe an appointment with uh, an attorney or an appointment with, you know, an accountant or somebody like that. We all have appointments. But you know what? I believe that there are a lot of people who forget that they have an appointment with God every single week. I know that because if you look as you're passing by on the way or after you've gone home from church, there are people who are out, you know, they've been fishing, they've been working in their yard, they've been doing all kinds of things rather than having an appointment with God. But you know what? As much as we could talk about them today, they're not here. It may be that there are those who have gathered in an assembly this morning who have forgotten that they have an appointment with God. You say, what do you mean, preacher? I, I was here, yes, but did you remember that you had an appointment with God? Did you come because you have been made to come? Did you come because, you know, that was just your tradition, that's always what you've done on Sundays and things like that? Or did you remember that you have an appointment with God. Now let that sink in for just a moment. We are here today to meet together with God. David said it this way in Psalm 95 verse 6. He says, Oh come, let us worship, let us bow down, or let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. When we turn to the pages of the New Testament in Acts chapter 20 at verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 1, we know that the first century Christians, when they came together, it was on the first day of the week. They, they met together on what we know as Sunday. And so we have come today to meet with God, to bow down, as it were, before our Maker. I want us to understand this morning, as we, as we think about the fact that we have come together to bow down before the Lord, our Maker, that when we worship that there are times when God does not accept worship. When we, when we turn through the pages of the Old Testament, we can find examples of those who attempted to worship God that he did not accept. Leviticus chapter 10, we have Nadab and Abihu who offered strange fire to God and God caused that fire to come out and consume them. We could think about Cain and Abel, even before Nadab and Abihu. Cain brought an offering that God had not authorized. Abel brought one that God was pleased with. God was not pleased with the one that Cain brought. And you know that that resulted in murder, how that Cain killed his brother, murdered his brother Abel. Even in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew chapter 15, at verse number 9, we read about the Pharisees, the Jews of Jesus' day, and he spoke about how that in vain they do worship him, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. We, we understand there's that vain worship, that, that idea of coming before God to worship and yet not accomplishing what it was we came for, that vain worship that, that we could talk about. And so, as we think about the fact that we have an appointment with God today, and we have come to bow down before our Maker. We have come to worship Him. 
there's something that I believe we need to remember in light of the fact that there's worship that God will not accept, there's worship that He does accept, but here's what we need to remember. We need to remember that God gets to decide how He desires to be worshipped. It's not my uh, desire how I want to worship Him, I have come to worship Him. I have an appointment with Him and I am here to bow down before Him and so I don't get to choose. He is the one who gets to choose. If I go out to buy a new car and I take my money in my hand and I go to the dealership and he's got a bunch of cars out there, you know what? I can pick the one that I want. I may not want the green one. I may not want the one that's bright yellow. I may not want the orange one. I may want the red one. And if I've got the money and I'm buying the car and it's going to be my car, I get to choose which one I want. I get to choose which one I buy. God is the creator. God is the maker, as we notice there in Psalm 95. He is the one that we have, uh, are bowing down. And because He is who He is, you and I don't get to choose. God gets to choose. And so we always need to remember that when we have our appointment with God. It's God that we have come to worship. God is the one who gets to choose how He desires to be worshipped. There are some things that God has authorized for us to do in worship. And this morning we want to take just a few minutes and we want to talk about five things that God has authorized as worship to Him. And, and you know, I wish that, that we could stretch these out. I've got enough material, and I'm not going to present it all this morning, but I've got enough material in regard to worship. We could study it for six months and never even exhaust it. We could talk about something new every week. But as we think about it today, there are five things that God has authorized in worship to Him. Number one, God has authorized us to sing. But did you realize that there are two things that God accomplishes or wants us to accomplish when we sing to Him? Number one, we sing praise to God. That's one of the things that He wants us to accomplish. In the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 8 through 12, and because of the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to read all of that, but let me just summarize it for you, and then I'll give you a statement that's found in it. As we look at that, the point that Paul makes is this. Because Jesus did what he did, because he made it possible for the Jews to be saved, and not just for the Jews to be saved and fulfilling what he had promised to Abraham and to the patriarchs. Because he did that, he also made it possible for the Gentiles, in keeping his promise to, to even Abraham and blessing all of the, the people of the earth, he made it possible for the Gentiles to be saved. But, but notice this point that's made in the book of Romans chapter 15. He, he, after making that point, he says, As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. You see the idea of singing that's found in the New Testament church, and that's what Paul is writing about here in Romans chapter 15. One of the points of singing is to praise God. We never should forget that. We always have to keep that in our mind, that we're lifting up our voices 
to praise Him. You know, a lot of times, I think we get in our mind that the reason we lift up our voice is because we sound good. And if we have somebody, you know, who doesn't sound good, we may make fun of them. Or we may be the one who's getting made fun of because we don't really sound good. Folks, that's not the point. We need to remember that. We lift up our voice to praise God. We probably wouldn't recognize the singing that was done in the first century. They didn't have the four-part harmony that we have today. And I'm thankful that we can have beautiful singing that, that we have, but, but as we think about that and, and how music itself evolved, God made it possible for the voices to blend together and to sound good, but that's not the point. We praise God when we sing. And so one of the things that God wants us to accomplish when we come together to worship Him is to sing praises to Him. But number two, not only do we sing, do we praise when God when we uh, sing, but we also teach. We teach one another when we sing. And you know, I'm not sure, but what we haven't forgotten that one either. To a, to a great extent, we may have forgotten that one of the things that we're to do when we sing is to teach one another. Now, I find in the book of Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 15, and going through verse number 17, that the Bible says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And then he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, verse 17, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The point that he makes, that Paul makes here, is that we are to teach and admonish one another. Paul also wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 at verse 15, What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. That idea of singing praise is there, but what does he mean by singing with my mind? I'm to be teaching, I'm to be learning when I sing. Listen to this. Listen to it carefully. You know, as far as this matter is concerned, the song leader has just as an important role as the preacher in teaching. In teaching brothers and sisters in Christ. As we, as we sing the songs, the song leader has chosen songs that helps to teach, and thus we need to choose the songs wisely as song leaders. You know, what are the lessons that are needed for today? Uh, you know, as I think about preaching, which is a part of the teaching of the church, as, as I think about that, you don't expect the preacher, you don't expect me, you don't expect the Bible class teachers to just come in and randomly start talking about some things, you know, and, and randomly, uh, without any connection whatsoever, uh, start quoting verses or, you know, doing those kinds of things. Well, if it's not acceptable in the teaching from the pulpit, then why would it be acceptable when it comes to the songs that we sing? 
You know, we need to have some purpose in our singing. Part of teaching, a part of worshiping with our mind is the ability to learn. How would you feel if I came up every Sunday morning and I preached the same sermon? I never changed the sermon. I just preached the same one every, every Sunday morning. Well, I know how you'd feel. You'd say, well, brother, we'll help you move. You know, we'll get your truck loaded for you and get you out of town. You'll be gone because, you know, we just don't want to listen to the same sermon, but we want to listen to the same song. You know, people will walk out the back door and, and they will thank the preacher for teaching them something that they did not know. And by the same mouth, they will grunt because the song leader sang a song. Well, I didn't know that song. I wish you wouldn't sing those songs that I don't know. Y'all know I'm telling the truth, don't you? Maybe some of us have said it. But when we come together to worship, we praise God, but we teach one another when we sing. And it's not just teaching a new tune. It's teaching God's Word through the words of the song. You know, song leaders have a a great responsibility in teaching the congregation. What does the congregation need? When I was living in Atwood, we had a song leader. He always wanted to know, what are you, what are you preaching on Sunday? Because he wanted the songs to match the sermon. Now, I'm not suggesting that, is, that needs to be done, that, that it has to be done in that way. But we do have the need for continuity. We don't just fill up time when we're singing songs. We have the need to teach lessons by the songs. And again, you know, I said we had so much that we could talk about today, but, but again, and I'm, I don't want to sound like we're on song leaders, but, you know, when we're choosing the songs that we sing, sometimes we do a lot of flip-flopping. What does that mean? Well, our, our emotions are flip-flopped. Uh, we sing these songs that, that, that sometimes bring the emotions to a, to a low level, and then, then we, we, we raise it right back up. You know, sometimes we're saying, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the very next song is, sing and be happy. We need to put some thought. And, and not only that, but when we're singing, how many of you have ever heard the song, No Tears in Heaven? You know, a lot of times we sing that song, or it used to, we used to sing it at funerals, and that was a sad occasion. Why sing one of the happiest songs in the songbook as though we're, we're, we're sad about it? There are no tears in heaven, folks. That's a happy thing, not a sad thing. We're not, we're not sad because there are no tears up there. We're happy because there are no tears in heaven. Amen. And so when we think about it, we praise God but we teach. That's when we come together. That's, that's a part of what we're doing. But, but number two this morning, not only has God authorized singing, God has authorized praying. Let me just talk about that just a second this morning. I want you to think about Jesus and his prayer life. You know, think about some of the prayers that you read in the New Testament regarding things that Jesus prayed. In the book of John, chapter 17, he prays for the unity of his disciples. He is about to leave them, and he prays for their unity. In Luke, chapter 22, 
he prays is, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. You know, there are occasions such as when he prayed for the food that uh, they were about to eat and in uh, connection with the, uh, the feeding of the 4,000 and also the feeding of the 5,000, 5, Jesus prayed a lot of times. But, but whatever it was that he was praying about on those occasions had to do with, the, with his heart at that moment and, and the burden that he had on himself and the heart that, he, uh, that, that, that was on his heart. Those were the subjects of his prayers. And when Jesus was praying, you know, it was generally to get something done. There were times when he thanked God, and of course we understand that, but, but for the most part he is praying to get something done. He's asking for the Father's help in doing things. Now what does that have to do with us? We come together, and one of the things that we're authorized by Jesus to do when we come together to worship is to pray. One of the acts by which we, we worship God is prayer. But we need to understand that we have the opportunity to have an appointment with God and prayer is man at God's feet expressing his honest feelings, the honest feelings of his heart. And, and not only that, but when we pray and worship, we're praying for a group of people. I want you to think about this, men, when you lead us in prayer. When we're praying, we're praying to a group of people, a group of people who have specific needs in their lives. But more than that, we have a group of people who need to be moved to specific actions. Things that need to be done in the Lord's kingdom. Things that need to be done in individual lives. And if those are the burdens that we have on our heart, that we're thinking about these things instead of just shotgunning our prayers, then our worship becomes more meaningful. Think about that. If Jesus was praying to get things done, shouldn't we be praying and that general way as well to help those who hear our prayer when we have come together, especially in worship, when we're at home in our private prayers, we, we ask God for help in our lives, you know, more so because it's our time to commune privately with God. But when we've come together to worship Him, we have a whole group. And if somebody's praying for me, and I just want you to know, I probably get prayed for as much as anybody because I'm the preacher, you know. And every time it makes me feel good that somebody has mentioned my name before God. But I'm not the only person. And I realize that we're all here. We're together. And when our names and when our needs are lifted before the Father Himself, means something to us. We have come together to pour out the honest uh, burden that we have on our heart. It means something to us. God has authorized prayer in worship. But then also God has authorized us to partake of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 and 25. Now we have that passage that so often we read prior to partaking of the Lord's Supper. 
Have you ever thought about the memories? You know, we do it in remembrance of the Lord. Have you ever thought about the memories that the apostles had in the first century? They watched him as he was beaten. They stood afar off as he was being crucified, but they knew what was happening. John was right down at the foot of the cross. If they're remembering that death, there were some very emotional times, I'm sure, that they remembered that. And we live 2,000 years later. We, we didn't just look up and see. We didn't live through the things that they lived through, many of them in the first century. Many of those Christians in Jerusalem had walked by Jesus as He was hanging on the cross and had mocked Him and spit on Him themselves. And now they have become Christians. Do you think about the memories that they had? We can't have their memories that we live through them, but we can have them from the standpoint that they have recorded them for us in the New Testament. We think about those things. We're to remember the Lord in that time. But you know what? When we're partaking of the Lord's Supper... We need to remember that it's a solemn thing because it involves the death of our Lord. It involves His death. It's a solemn thing. But not only, folks, is it a solemn thing, I want you to understand that it's also a joyous thing because it involved or resulted in the possibility of our forgiveness. Listen to Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 28 when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He said, Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. It accomplished our salvation. That's not a sad thing. That's a happy thing. You know, perhaps we need to be more like David as he was in Psalm 51 at verse number 12 when he asked the Lord to restore to me the joy of thy salvation. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's solemn. It cost Christ his life. to make it possible for us to have the joy of heaven. And so this morning, worship should mean something to us. It's not texting. It's not, uh, you know, thinking about what we're having for lunch. It's thinking about what Christ did and what he made possible for me. But then not only has he instituted or authorized the Lord's Supper, but he's also spoken to us about giving. Giving, of course, is an act of worship. It's participating in the work of God with Him. It's mentioned with other acts of worship in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that the New Testament Christians did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayers. The word fellowship is the word that's used later, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in regard to the contribution 
And again, it's the participating in the work of the Lord. Giving is an assigned act with an individual obligation to give on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Indeed, we participate in the work of the Lord. Folks, I want you to understand something. When you give, you're not giving to the church. You're participating in the work of the church. You're giving to God. You're not giving it to the elders. You're not giving it to the preacher. You're giving it to God. And so the next time you're tempted to withhold your contribution or cut back on it because, well, you know, for whatever reason, just remember what the Old Testament said. When the Israelites withheld their contributions that they were supposed to be giving, that Malachi said, you are robbing God. You're robbing Him of your worship on that that day. Last thing, preaching. Again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, he mentions they continued or devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's their teaching when they were uh, there with them. The apostles also mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 6 at verse 2 that that it wasn't right for them whenever the the widows were in need, it wasn't right for them to uh, give up preaching the word and serve tables and thus they uh, appointed the deacons of that, that early church. You know, when we come together, we spend a lot of time talking. Hopefully, preachers spend a lot of time in study so that they can present lessons that are meaningful. But preaching involves taking the ancient words of God, some of them written, you know, over 4,000 years ago. It involves taking the ancient word, making application to present-day living. How do I worship? That's what we're talking about today. What does it mean to worship? What's involved when we assemble together and worship? We're taking the ancient word and making application. Sometimes it may be, such as next week or two weeks from today, when we talk about forgiveness and so forth. But it involves taking that ancient word of God and making application into modern-day present living. Those are things that, that God has authorized to do. But now as we begin to, to bring our lesson to a close and tie some things together, I want you to remember a couple of passages. One that was read during our Bible reading this morning. John chapter 4 verse 24. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Understand that worship has some authorized Acts. That's what we've been talking about thus far this morning. Five things that we've spoken about. You know, the, uh, uh, the giving, the praying, the, the Lord's Supper and singing and, and so forth. Those five things that we've mentioned here. There's some specific acts that God has authorized. But I want you to also understand that worship has an authorized attitude. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. I read earlier for you, quoted Matthew chapter 15, verse number 9, In vain do they worship Me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Did you note what was said in verse 8 just prior to that? This people, He says, 
honors me with their lips, but the heart is far from me. When your appointment with God comes up on Sunday, where's your heart? Where's your heart? When you're singing, you know, we had a little fun a while ago with that singing kind of thing. When we're singing, where's our heart? When we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, where's our heart? Solemn? Joyous? Those are heart issues. Where's our heart? Sometimes we are emotionless people when it comes to worship. We're emotionless because we have performed the authorized acts. But we haven't worshipped if we do not have the authorized attitude. You see, it's not a spectator sport. It's not just the song leader leading a song or the prayer leader leading a prayer or the preacher standing up and speaking for 30 minutes. It's the whole group when we've come together participating together. And I think that's better accomplished when we think about this next statement. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 says, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. Now listen to this last part of that verse. English Standard Version says it this way, Let all things be done for building up. Mind you, Paul specifically talks about when we've come together as the church. He specifically talked about things that we've done in worship. And then he reminds us, let all things be done for building up. That's a construction term. If you're reading from the King James Version, it uses the word edify or edification. Building up. Our worship is not scriptural just to go through the right acts. You see, it also must edify. Wish I had more time to deal with this this morning, but our time is up. I hope you'll go home and read Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Philippians 1, verses 9 through 11. And I want you to notice there, there's some things that the Apostle Paul prays for. He prays for the love of these brethren that it may abound more and more. He prays for their knowledge and discernment. He prays that they will approve what is excellent. He prays for them to be pure and blameless. He prays for them to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Brethren, I believe that in the assemblies in the first century, when those people came together, it helped them to know how to make, right, make good decisions and do right things. 
That's why God wanted us to come together. Yes, He wanted us to worship Him, but there's a byproduct that comes from that. It gives us the power to go forward. To live not only on Sunday afternoon, but on Monday morning and Wednesday and Friday and Saturday too. Our worship has a purpose. So we need to work on it to to help to participate in it within ourselves as as gospel preachers and song leaders and prayer leaders and and, and even the ones who have served in the Lord's Supper table. We need to help people be built up, to be edified, to know what to do when they leave, to know how to act when they go home, when they go to work. That's a part of what we do when we come together. And we have the appointment with God every single week. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We would invite you to become one. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of the sins that you have in your life. Make the great confession. And we will take you and bury you in water to have your sins washed away. Maybe you're here and today you know that's what you need to do. We would love to assist you with that. Maybe you're here and there's something you need to make right in a public way. You need the prayers of the church. We'd love to pray with you right now as together we stand.